Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Brian. Thanks so much for joining us podcast. Uh, such an honor have you. So I would, I would like to ask you first, how would you like to define yourself for the audience? Just first time you'll be listening to you. How would you like to define yourself? My name is Brian Johnson. I am the founder of a company called Kernel that is building uh, brain interfaces. Before Kernel, I built a company called Braintree Venmo. Mm-hmm. Great. So um, I'm curious to ask you first, how do you think as we are human how, can ask us the right question? Because I think it's really hard sometimes to figure out what you really passionate about and what you really want to do. So for you, how do you figure out the right question or the, yeah, because sometimes it's, it's not easy to figure out this, this question early on. That, that strikes me as one of these questions that a whole bunch of thoughts flood into my mind. Mm-hmm. And as each one lands, it seems like it's bad advice <laughs> where I don't know. I'm uncertain if there's a good answer to that question, mm. at least that I can identify a path has was certainly not follow a traditional advice playbook mm-hmm. and certainly would not have been actionable via some heuristic or quotation. But maybe the, the most important thing, at least there's something, at least there's something, because most of people follow the norm and the traditions in way of thinking, and, but at least there's something you can share. Oh, there we go. Okay. All right. It's, it's worthwhile to call attention or try to muster the soberness to realize what game you're playing. For example, I was born into a deeply religious family and community, and I was unaware of the environment I was even in. I was unaware of the game I was playing into my early 20s, and then it occurred to me that I had been born into this system, and I was given rules of, of existence that I played by. And it was that I had lived my life by default in that system, but not really questioning the system itself. And so I'd say that, yeah, to jump to the question at a higher level is stake. It really makes sense to make a baseline assessment. What is the state of play? Now, we'll, we'll never be able to fully assess reality because it's so hidden from us, but we can make small steps in understanding what forces are at play. And I guess that, that, that has been maybe the characterization of my career to date is trying to increasingly understand what game I'm in and what game I really want to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that time, because you have this idea, I don't know, you have moments of doubt or maybe fear of doing something maybe different in a different way with asking these questions. Yes. In fact, I would say one way to explain my life through my experience has been that I've 
been moving through one reality after another. And so, for example, again, this reference of I was born into a religious community, uh, I ultimately decided that I didn't believe the things I was taught in that religious framework, and I left that religious community. And so I would now consider it to be you know, a false reality, not necessarily a negative one, right? because I learned many positive things from my upbringing and uh, about working with a larger community of people towards common goals and there were a lot of very positive things but ultimately the the grand scheme of things uh in that game was if you live by these certain rules and do these certain things you get this this uh, reward in the afterlife and i ultimately decided that wasn't something i believed to be true and then i went to my next reality reading a lot about uh, cognitive uh, neuroscience and and specifically learning about the biases that I have. Uh, there's 100, 188 chronicled human biases of tricks that our minds play to deal with a complicated reality that allow us to successfully navigate a complicated world. In doing so, we make errors in judgment all the time, and we are oblivious to these things. And so when I learned about that and really that my brain was fabricating a substantial portion of my reality falsely, just so I could survive the complexity of life. That was, that was also a moment where I began to question, what do I really know? Then I'd say a third is when I experienced a decade of chronic depression and thoughts would constantly stream into my mind about the hopelessness of existence and a lack of desire to exist. Those were also false realities. And so I'd say I've maybe I've gone from one false reality to another over my entire life. And it's not to say that I now find myself in a true reality. I just find myself in the next one. So I suppose the question is going to be how might I discover the false nature of what I'm experiencing now? Actually, I found what you shared already in other podcasts about uh, your experiences, but I am curious really about when you try to climbing the Columbia mountain and the top, and, and you say that's representing what you had this time. And I'm curious because I think that's, that leads us to what you're doing now, but I'm curious what kind of this moment you realize that, that what would miss missing for you, the way of thinking or being conscious about the experiences or the mistakes or the right decision that the human should do. I'm curious about the state, what happened in that case, what kind of maybe was missing for you and you realize it. And that was a representation for, you, for, for what you have, what you had as a problems for depression and et cetera. Yeah. Yep. The thing that excites me most about Kernel as it relates to what we're discussing is that if you th think about society on a day-to-day -day basis, the mm -hmm. single largest raw input is our cognitive processes, our thoughts mm -hmm. uh, and emotions within ourselves and between each other. Yet our thoughts and emotions, conscious and subconscious, are one of the only things in the known universe that we cannot measure. And if you think about it, like we, we measure how fast we're moving in vehicles, our temperature, we look at thermometers uh, to, to assess, you know, all these different instruments in our world to assess uh, the state of affairs around us. And we have some introspective capacity with our own minds, but we capture probably a very small amount of what is really going on. And to me, that is probably the next false reality that I'll probably 
be looking into more deeply, which is I have this conscious experience of what I think is going on, but there's so much more happening that I'm aware of. And if we can actually measure the mind, we may develop a different picture of reality. And if we can represent that measurement in terms of numbers, then our cognition, conscious and unconscious, becomes a formal engineering discipline. And that's important because if you look at the progress we've made in society over the past, let's call it a few thousand years, it's been built upon engineered progress where one advancement builds upon another advancement. And so if you contrast how we dealt with the, with the bubonic plague in the 14th century versus how we dealt with uh, COVID in terms of sequencing the genome and creating an mRNA vaccine, et cetera, in the timeframes we did, that's, representat that's representative of, of compounded progress. If you look at humans, uh, mm -hmm. humans by themselves, not humans coupled with technology, but humans by themselves as a system of intelligence, we're not too different from how humans were, uh, let's call it a thousand or 2000 or 3000 years ago. We have the base, the same basic properties of our intelligent system, just better technology. And so humans are one of the only things, one of the only systems of intelligence outside of technology, science, and institutions that has not been able to scaffold in a systematic way. And that's the promise I think that Colonel poses is that humans could, uh, we can imagine ourselves in a future where we could be much more likely to achieve our, our personal and collective goals because we can engineer our way to those objectives uh, mm -hmm. versus right now, my experience is like, you know, kind of flying by the seat of my pants every day, doing my best with what I have. Yeah. That's very interesting. Maybe I first ask you, what's actually the reality? You, you mentioned that you have discussed conscious experiences. So to realize something you weren't aware of, but when it comes to reality for human, what could be the reality? Is it something you can't describe what is actual reality and why maybe believe it's human not designed, human brain not designed a way to recognize reality. Is it intentional and evolution or why do you think we don't have this kind of conscious uh, mind all the time to recognize the reality? One of the, more, the things I'm most excited about at Kernel is that we could, via measuring the brain, start representing a person's experience of reality as, as represented by the neural activity. So we be, could begin working with something that is measurable, repeatable in a longitudinal fashion and compare it one to another. And of course, right now, any other answer I would offer to you would just be word salad. It would be words cobbled together floating through certain philosophies, and I would probably be talking gibberish. But really, I think it's about measurement. And if we can have a, a sturdy foundation of measurement, then I think we can commence on the scientific exploration of what is, what, how does a person experience their perceived reality? And how, do they, how does that change over time and in different contexts? And how does that differ from person to person? Those are the kinds of questions that we'll, be, we'll begin to ask once we have systematic measurement of the mind.
Interesting. So what does it take to achieve that, the measurement? If you can tell more about that technology you try to, or maybe the asking the right question at kernel and you still work in that, what could be the fundamental question? And you still maybe still, yeah, it does take time to answer them. It does. That, that's exactly right. We, we have built technology out in front of known applications. And so when I speak to people about brain computer interfaces, immediately most people have the association of a brain interface enabling someone to control something, a cursor or to type. And that's deeply embedded in their intuitions mm. uh, or from the matrix downloading Kung Fu. Less common is the idea that measurement would be useful as an entry point, that the reason we would have brain interfaces would be to measure our brains. And the value there is that when you can systematically measure a given thing, you can create reference ranges. It's why when we go into the doctor, uh, say we go into the cardiologist and the cardio and we want to assess the health of our heart. If the cardiologist were to ask us how our heart feels, we would think they were crazy. We'd say, okay, I'll tell you, but also I would like an EKG and a blood panel, and I'd like to look at my blood pressure, et cetera. We know that measurement of our heart through these different uh, measurement modalities offer a much higher fidelity insight into the health and capacity of our heart. And the same is true with our minds. If, you know, if I'm engaging with a therapist or, or a friend or anyone, and they ask me how my mind is filled, it's equally ludicrous as trying to assess the health of my heart uh, in my self-introspective abilities. And so by doing that, you can create a reference range. So if the cardiologist does measure my, my cholesterol levels and my blood pressure and my arterial plaques and et cetera, they can not just measure it, but they can also say useful things. They can say, Brian, you are in the X percentile for blood flow capacity for your age, or you have normal cholesterol levels, or you have uh, bad cholesterol levels because there's reference ranges established because we've, we've gathered enough sample. Right now, not only can we not measure our brains, but we can't even say useful things about them. And very rarely can we say useful things about it. You can't take a baby into the doctor and you know when they're at, at seven months old and to say the baby's brain is operating within our normal distribution. Or you can't look at a, when you go to college, you know, like, this is, et cetera. So what we hope to do is if you can measure systematically, create the reference ranges, we can begin to explore saying useful things about our brains, uh, about all kinds of things, our, our learning, our performance, our health, emotional control, our attention, all the above. That's a very interesting point. I guess to ask you, you said that this measurement maybe doesn't give you like a context or what is actually happening i mean example like learning something but do you think there's other things it's hard to measure for example when i don't know in the brain do you think there's other things you believe that it's still hard to measure or maybe something is mystical for you how it happened you didn't understand how that happened yeah you're correct uh, i mean it's i i don't know what the most, you know, most similar comparison would be, I suppose the genome would be maybe a, re a decent reference point in this conversation, which is once we figured out technically how to sequence the genome, 
then, and we did so at cost, at scale, because the cost went down. Then the work was commenced by academics and government and by private companies of trying to learn what useful things they could do with the genome now that we had that genetic code. And people, of course, have used that information to create better cancer treatments, to do better uh, diet design, to uh, et cetera. And it's, so it's really an, an activity of science. And we know that there's going to be a duration of time of scientific exploration with our technology because we've built it out knowing exactly what will be the most useful things to do with it. And so our objective, again, is, is reliable measurement, the creation of reference ranges, which then uh, with lower cost accessible technology would allow for a robust exploration of the science to start pursuing the questions you raised, which is we don't know many of these things. And we also don't know if many of these things could be answered. Maybe we can answer some, but not all things, but it really is we are entering into a new era of possibility. Mm -hmm. We have high hopes, but we really don't know what's going to be possible. And so the thing that we can do is make the technology work very well and make it low cost and get it into many people's hands. And if we can do that, then we create the highest probability that we will discover useful things that everyone would benefit from. That's a very excellent point. But I guess ask you two points here. About the first one about the technology we have already for brain computer interface. And yeah, there's still a limitation, but if you can tell more about what could be still technology roadblocks in that case to have this reliable measurement. At the same time, the cost, how you can really have a reliable technology and with low cost. It's challenging for you. Um, if you can tell more about that, because it's a very interesting point what you mentioned here. Yeah. We considered that trade-off quite a bit when we were building the technology that the analogy I like to use is that imagine if our brain activity was on a big screen TV. If you do an implantable version, you get uh, a small picture, let's say, of the screen with a 4K fidelity. You see exactly what's going on, and you get audio that's representative of that little space. But you miss out on the rest of the screen. You can't see what's going on, so you can't see the whole picture, the whole movie. Uh, if you have a non-invasive device, for example, like what we've built with Kernel Flow, you see the entire screen but the images are blurred, as is the audio. So you kind of have to squint and listen very carefully to figure out what's going on. You're not going to get the same kind of 4K fidelity you're going to get with an implant. And then our other technology, Kernel Flux, is like watching the screen in 1080p. It's just with a bigger machine. And so there's trade-offs that we've made from an engineering perspective of what technology would be most useful now for the most number of people. There's a lot of work being done on next generation technologies, both invasive and non-invasive, that will probably come to market in seven to 10 years. Right now, it's either implantable or it's the technology that we've built at Kernel on Kernel Flow and Flux. Great. I've been, I, just, I, I don't know if you have any something maybe counterintuitive when try to yeah, or non-invasive technology and measure something. It was something for the result or maybe after testing was counterintuitive. Maybe the way you, you assumed that the result should look like. I don't know if I have any moment like that was surprising or counterintuitive. 
I have actually I did I experienced I participated in a study internally at Kernel last mm. year with one of our prototype systems. The objective was just to bring it up and pressure test it and find out all the ways we could break it. But we ended up finding something interesting. And it was actually something that was intuitive, but it was nice to see confirmational evidence. So in the same way, I, I wear uh, a tracker for my sleep. And so when I wake up in the morning without a tracker, I can uh, use self-reflection and say, how do I feel? Do, do I, did I sleep well last night or poorly, uh, poorly? Do I feel ready for the day? But I don't have the granularity that a, a, a sleep tracking device would provide me. A sleep tracking device would show me my different sleep stages. It would show me my uh, sleep onset, how much time it took me to go to sleep. It would show me my wake up uh, after sleep, my WASO. So it gives me uh, you know, six or seven data points, my HRV. It gives me six or seven data points that my self-reflection couldn't capture. Now, even if those are accurate, let's call it to like 70% of a gold standard measurement, it's still a higher dimensional data set that allows me to quantify my sleep hygiene and health and allows me to run experimentation on it. So the question we pose at Kernel is if a sleep tracker can provide this higher dimensional of information that allows us to understand our sleep and our habits that contribute to healthy sleep, then what would happen if we looked at cognitive function uh, as a result of sleep? So we did a 13 week study where we measured our, all of us had wearable uh, trackers for our sleep. And then we performed tasks the following day. And the four tasks were uh, short-term memory, impulse control, a resting state, and a reaction time. And interestingly, in the analysis of my results, that it showed that my impulse control or my self-discipline was uh, correlated with the amount of deep sleep I got, total sleep, and sleep onset, the number of minutes it took me to fall asleep. And so in, intuitively, you could say that makes sense. If you get good sleep, you're going to have better self-control the following day. But what, was it, what I found interesting about it is that this data of my brain activity was independently correlated to, uh, my, my brain data was independently correlated to the sleep information. It was not just behavioral. And so I had behavioral data that confirmed it plus brain activity. And so it, it was now an independent information source that provided it. And so that does match up with my experience. And so it, it opened, it was, a, it was an exciting experience for me because I wear a device on my wrist that tracks my activity and sleep, et cetera, because it provides, let's call it a dozen or so data points that I cannot get. We're putting a similar device on the brain with over a thousand channels. And so the question I have is how many vectors of inf information will we be able to acquire about the brain? Will we be able to identify a hundred interesting things, 50, 10, 500, a thousand? I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question that we've never had this kind of sensor architecture on the brain in this longitudinal nature. And it, it does invite the question of what can we learn about ourselves with this next generation technology. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. But I'm curious about the resilience and the measurement or redundancy, because we speak about the, sometimes failure could happening, how we can make sure that the measurement, yeah, I don't know, of course, we speak here about if we speak non-invasive technology, sometimes there are certain 
electrodes or maybe location you should extract this kind of useful information for you the scenario that how you have this cut intelligence in the device itself so that in the example you mentioned it's very very inspiring that it could change our life to be more conscious about this situation you mentioned but for you how you consider that kind of redundancy or resilience in the device itself so yeah help that you developed yeah but if once from an engineering perspective when humans have numbers to work with, we do useful things with them. So for example, basic things in society like traffic lights, uh, red, yellow, and green, the timing of those lights are based upon numbers uh, on physics and also numbers we know about humans. So uh, from green to yellow and yellow to red is based upon human reaction time and the physics of breaking in time in a safe manner so that people don't pile up. And so when we do have numbers and when we do have awareness of these systems, we build society around it. It's the same reason why we, we have laws that people with a certain alcohol blood level, blood alcohol level can't drive. Mm -hmm. And so if we start acquiring information about the brain that is inaccessible to us today, that, but becomes accessible to us via this device, then it will allow us to rethink society in the most fundamental of ways. Uh, everything from the news that is written to the news that we read, to the friends we have, to the style of our learning, to our own personal health and wellness practices, to, I mean, you name it, everything we do as humans uh, would potentially be based upon some kind of, of quantifiable effect in our brain. And so it really, that's why brain interfaces, I represent such a substantial opportunity for society because it really is an opportunity to, to reconsider how we might re-engineer society with data on the fundamental thing that makes us, us. Whereas right now you know, we, we do have this introspective ability, but we're really flying blind in the same way that I would say I was flying blind in my own self-awareness attempt of my sleep before. I really had no idea uh, how to go about improving my sleep without being able to conduct scientific experiments every day, uh, do the experiment, quantify the data, do it again. So it just introduces a new level of uh, engineering discipline in how we go about doing this. Mm -hmm. Great. I'm curious about maybe what other maybe um... I don't know, because I, I, I don't know how this is a comparison between invasive and non-invasive technology. For you, when you invest in that, do you see any limitation for non-invasive technology that cannot really capture what we have in invasive brain-computer phase, for example? Or you, you, what are your, what are your philosophy on that? How do you see that you can advance the capabilities of non-invasive brain-computer phase? What's missing me between both of them so that we can have this high accuracy in the measurement? There is definitely a trade-off of information fidelity that we have made. So mm. the highest fidelity information that you can get is with an implantable device. You're getting, you can put these electrodes in the proximity of neurons and detect when these neurons are firing. When you're looking at the brain non-invasively, you're looking at a collection of neurons firing, or even you're looking in the case of kernel flow, 
you're looking at blood oxygenation related to neurons firing. And so there are different levels of granularity of information. And that's why the, the analogy is useful of imagining that brain activity is on a, a big screen and that in a non-invasive uh, technology, you're watching the movie, but you can't, but the, the images are blurred on the screen and the audio is a little muffled. It's a lower resolution uh, te uh, technique. However, uh, in exchange, you get full head coverage. So you can look at the entire uh, cortical part of the brain and you also you can put it on and take it off. So it doesn't require surgery. Whereas with surgery, you're looking at a hyper-localized region. And so where the technology is at today, you can't have it all. You can't have 4K definition across the entire brain. The technology is just not there yet. And so we've done, we've made the trade-offs we think that will be successful in the near term. We, we think we have built what will be successful in this phase of brain interfaces over the next seven years. Mm -hmm. Great. But I could just ask you, I don't know if at Colonel, do you ask a question about how the human can have this kind brain can have continual learning and adapted to uncertain situation and being adaptable. I think that's helpful to building the robots. But if you can tell us about the process, how it happened, and do you think that because some people ask that, can we have just kind of uploading this learning in human brain? I, I don't know if that makes sense to you or doesn't make sense at all. Do you think that's something we should do or investigate more in that direction or doesn't? I mean, generally speaking, humans, are, we humans are pleasure seekers. And so mm -hmm. when you raise the question of, you know, brain computer interfaces, it produces a lot of pleasure in the brain to immediately go to, can I download my brain? Okay. Can I download a skill into my brain? Can I upload my consciousness? Oh. It, it's fun for people to entertain those conversations. And that's again, where most of the discussion is today, where people assess this technology and that's where they, that's where the discussion goes. It's like, nah, you, you know, I want to upload my consciousness and it's, it's that or the other side, which is controlling a cursor or typing, which people say, ah, it's boring. I'm not going to do it. But really what's in the middle is this practical, useful thing of measurement. Mm. And so if, if the person that is evaluating this technology looks at it and says, okay, um, I would like to become a better gamer. And so therefore I would like to understand the circumstances in which I perform best in gaming. I'd like to understand the kind of dietary regimen and the kind of, uh, training games I can do to become a better gamer. That's useful. And it's something that people could incorporate into their life. It could also be the case if they're trying to become better at meditation or if they're trying to like all these practical things that we do or, or have more empathy when they speak to somebody else or better understand the depth of someone else's feelings. Mm -hmm. And so those topics are not as sexy as can I upload my consciousness to the internet, mm -hmm. uh, but they're practical. And mm -hmm. I think these will be the entry points into how the technology is used. And these conversations will happen when we start doing some demonstrations around this. I mean, even for example, one of our early uh, partnerships is looking at psychedelic experiences. Yeah. What, what happens uh, when someone is experiencing a psychedelic experience, you know, they have their, mm -hmm. they can report their conscious experience, 
but it's very, very hard right now to actually record brain activity. And if you, if you have a psychedelic experience administered, that is sub a conscious threshold of, of awareness, then you, you would report, you don't know that anything is going on, but that may not be true. These are the kinds of things that will enter into mainstream conversation and it will be a practical measurement device in the same way that wearables uh, on the wrist and the fingers have become commonplace and people value them for the, the uh, basic information provided about activity, sleep, et cetera. Uh, that would just be for our mind. And I suspect there'll be a lot of surprises too of what things we learn about ourselves, about each other and society. And we might, it's possible that when we start measuring these things that we could start forming similar conclusions to what, for example, when we could measure uh, our biological wellness via uh, blood draws and the effect of environmental pollution or toxins. Once mm -hmm. you understood that, that a toxin or pollution could damage the body, we took dramatic societal action to correct for that. The same mm -hmm. would be true for our minds. There's probably an abundance of pollution and toxins going into our minds on a daily basis. We just can't measure it uh, in a way that makes the conversation uh, approachable or sturdy or believable. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I would like to again to stop in the when, for example, you mentioned psychedelic psychedelics and here's like magic mushroom, etc. I mean, yeah, I don't know why it's hard to measure this state. If you think about it, what could, yeah, what's limiting here? Is this capabilities of the technology or, yeah, can, can you tell more about that? Why do you believe it's hard to measure in this state? I mean, from our skull, evolution did a remarkably good job of protecting our brain. Mm. The skull is thick, it's sturdy, it's very hard to get into. You know, yeah. there's a blood brain barrier. It's just very difficult to get at. Uh, when you put foreign objects in the brain, the brain hates it. And so it has a reaction to it, which is a difficult uh, problem for invasive things to, to solve. So it, it makes sense that from an engineering perspective that we have been successful as a, as a species to measure pretty much everything in the known universe. There's very few things we cannot measure. I mean, we can measure gravitational fields from black holes, uh, but we can't measure the basic workings of our brain on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that maybe suggests on the, dif the difficulty of the engineering problem to solve it. Mm -hmm. Great. But I'm curious to ask you in that case, do you think or I don't know, that maybe something beyond the brain and the body, maybe something, because we speak about the gut feeling, for example, how it happened. Is it something, if the situation and environment, is, everything is right, and your gut feeling tells you there's something not right. So I'm just curious what you think about a scenario like that, how the brain is based on this kind of rational thoughts and just analysis, everything, but something tells you. So do you think there's something beyond the brain itself? that tell you this kind of situation and are warning you as everything sounds perfectly fine. That's something I'm curious. How do you see this question? Is it important to consider also in brain computer face or something beyond that? Yeah. It, your question reminds me of show a uh, TV shows. I've seen that search for paranormal activity. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. people are trying to track down, ghosts or spirits or you know like 
<laughs> Thanks for some dimensions. I think there, you know, the human imagination is one. Be careful. That, yeah, the low situation. I think in, in every human has this kind of situation. I don't know that gut feeling to leave that something not right. Not about the ghost here, but something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think what's fun is that you know we have if if the version of the paranormal activity for the brain is you know our gut intuitions or you know. Mm that we, I don't know, the words we use uh, for these kinds of inexplicable things. Mm. I suppose the, the fun thing is we can try to measure it. And maybe there's something there, maybe there's not, maybe there's an mm. answer. <laughs> but, but at least we, you know, if at least we'd have a device to walk around and look for the ghosts mm -hmm. and to see if they're there. So I think everyone will be able to pose their question no matter where they're at on the spectrum, whether it's a, uh, a grounded scientist looking for cognitive decline or someone perhaps more creative and adventurous looking for this kind of paranormal activity, all are leg legitimate and fun questions that hopefully we can, we can look at. Mm -hmm. Great. Maybe silly question here about what, what you envision to do with, um, in kernel. Do you believe if every human being has this kind of conscious experiences? Do you think life would have a meaning in that case? Because we speak in the last episode about that time is evolution don't favor that human know the reality. It's intentional. It's designed that way. So if everyone have conscious experience and everyone is perfect, do you think that's something? I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm framing it in not the right way, but I don't know. Do you believe every, if every human being is conscious and doing the right things? Do you think life would make sense at the time? Yeah, I, I'm not making comparison, but yeah, maybe sometimes when we see like tiger and and animal, other animals, that this kind of cycle, they eat each other and we stop that. It reminds me something like that. If everyone's just equal and have this conscious experience, do you think? I don't know. I'm just maybe uh, maybe not right, but I'm curious maybe about that. Yeah. Yeah, I I I agree with you on the interestingness of posing this question. And my, my lived experience has been that I used to have a problem where every night around 7 p.m. I would overeat. So I would tell myself all day, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then 7 p.m. would roll around and I would be hungry and exhausted and stressed. And I would eat food despite my best, in, my, my best uh, goals of not doing it. And my solution after trying many things, I fired that version of myself. So I fired evening Brian and it was kind of a playful way for me to say, okay, this version of myself who is stressed and who is hungry is going to look to food to try to address those emotional needs, but it's ultimately making all the other versions of Brian's like morning Brian and uh, workout Brian, all unhappy. And so I just simply barred evening Brian from a decision to eat food from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. And that resulted in a significant life change for me that led to an another iteration where now uh, none of my conscious processes engage in deciding what I eat. I test over a few hundred biomarkers on a 90-day cycle and it allows my kidneys and my heart and my DNA methylation to all speak up and say, this is what I want. And so now my diet and my food decisions are based upon data. 
and the measurements I do, and they represent my entire body. My conscious mind doesn't make any decisions about what I eat outside of looking at the data. And so to, to bridge on your, build on your question, I think there's, there's three big points to me through the history of, of humanity where first we discovered that the earth was not the center of the universe. And that required us to reorient our, ourselves in, in our surroundings. And then we discovered that evolution uh, had created us. And three, I think uh, what this might lead to is in society today, we grant our conscious minds unchecked authority over everything we do. Our conscious mind is asked to perform every function we do. And oftentimes our conscious minds, as we all know from our life experience, gets us into a lot of trouble. We do things we know we, we don't want to do. We can't quite control it. And that was the case with my diet. And so what I think might be interesting and revolutionary is that we may enter into a stage of reconsideration that is it a good idea for each one of us individually and for us collectively that our conscious minds have unchecked authority over everything we do. Now, in my case, I decided that was not the case. That I was not, uh, I was not going to allow that, that I'm better off by having this other process of my diet being determined by my, my, bio, my data. And so it really is, it's an idea that I think is, is, has the potential of being very offensive to many people because in the same way that proposing that the earth was not the center of the universe was so offensive that people died. And the same is true with evolution. Uh, this one's equally powerful in its effects. And I wonder if it's the next revolution coming to society, which allows us to really reimagine ourselves fundamentally in ways that we just are not thinking about right now. Great. So I'm curious what could be other maybe iteration do you be like, yeah, to expand the technology? For example, I don't know for like PTSD or people have OCD because it's just challenging. Do you think this kind of the problem do you think maybe brain computer can address or to help people? That yeah, it's a strong possibility. We have our first customer. Some of our first customers are leading academic institutions mm -hmm. and they are pursuing things uh, like you were mentioning. So they're looking at a stroke, a traumatic brain injury, concussion, meditation, lucid dreaming, aging of the brain, uh, socialization. So all these basic questions of health and happiness and relationships. And so we, uh, fingers are crossed, uh, we'll, that those will be, those will represent positive uh, paths for further research. But we, we currently have between our academic partners, nonprofits and businesses, we have over, I think, 25 different topics being pursued. Mm -hmm. And so we're hopeful that with this kind of variety and diversity that we will find many promising avenues. Great. Great. So since we close and have a few questions, maybe the first one I think is very interesting about the failure. And because sometimes we, when we try to do something in life, sometimes it doesn't work out. And, and I believe that's relevant to every single human being. So if you can tell us your relationship with failure, what, how, how you really, yeah, overcome that salt and because it leads to depression and you already mentioned that before, but now the new Brian that after the journey, what, what kind of maybe techniques or 
the way you speak your mind to that. Because we can't understand our brain. It's hard. It's chaotic sometimes. And you feel shaken sometimes because you don't know. You don't know what is the right thing you have to do. So it's tricky sometimes for the brain to figure out. Yeah. I mean, failure, our, our brain performs this vital biochemical process uh, to teach us what things to do and what not to do. So if you touch a hot stove and you experience pain, then it's a great lesson that hot stoves shouldn't be touched. And so it's a very unpleasant experience. And those are useful. The idea when people speak about failure is they are representing that failing at a given thing is equal to touching a hot stove, that it's expected that one would experience a similar level of discomfort in doing so. And I've never had that kind of uh, psychological experience. I've never experienced negativity associated with failure. So it, it's is data about, an, about a given hypothesis that can then be incorporated into your next iteration. But I personally just don't, uh, as, I don't associate negative emotions with a given thing not working. It's uh, just part of the process of how to figure out uh, how to accomplish the given objective. Great, yeah. I don't know if you have any maybe ideas or maybe we need sometimes think about crazy ideas for kernel. I just yeah, sometimes we said to think about something beyond what you have already. One of the more interesting things I, I contemplate from a personal perspective is you know, when I engage in a given activity, let's say it's being a father and uh, my daughter is uh, she'll be 12 uh, this year. And, and the other day she said, dad, sometimes I want to cry and I don't know why. It's just, I just want to cry. And she said, that's, this is what it feels like to be a girl. And she said, you may not have that experience. And I said, you're right. I don't experience a desire to cry. And so I don't know what that feels like. And it was a wonderful moment in her trying to bridge her reality with my reality and mm -hmm. calling attention to the fact that I may be missing out on a substantial portion of her lived experience of what it means to have emotions and, and how she was expressing this to me. And brain interfaces offer the ability to potentially identify information about ourselves and each other that we don't have today. And so again, I, I know that this question, you, you know, crazy or outlandish usually sparks this idea of uploading our consciousness and downloading Kung Fu. What I think would be crazy is if we could really understand each other in a way that would allow us to diffuse violence and be less prone to tribalism and less prone to uh, extremes of thought and opinion and at lower lessen our confidence that we are always right you know a, a bit more humility that we're probably mostly wrong that to me would be the craziest thing is if colonel could introduce 
higher dimensional information that actually allowed us humans to get along a little bit better and have a little less strife and a little less conflict. That's very wonderful and very inspiring. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. But just uh, and, and, and there's one, two questions of three left, but the first one about your way of thinking about life, because I think it's something, yeah, honestly, I was thinking also about the life itself and we have to, we will not live forever. So, but the, uh, the way you say that is it's like in Fanatic Game, you said that, but how do you see this kind of, this feeling that you want to be in a constant game or play or be fulfilled because yeah time yeah it's sometimes for our brain we feel that we here forever but it's scary and but i'm curious how do you see it, this kind of infinite games that what do you mean about that going back to the beginning of our conversation and trying to figure out what is really going on we live in a time where we expect to be entertained every second of the day. And the most, we're in a competition of creating entertainment that other people subscribe to. And this is not the, this has not been the case uh, always for humanity. Different cultures have valued different things. It's just easy for us to imagine that this is how things have always been, but it's a ferocious competition to entertain. And that system doesn't lend itself easily towards thinking of longer term objectives that are not immediately accessible. Like, can I scroll through and see one more picture? Can I read one more post? Can I, you know, we're, we're trying to feed our, our dopamine systems every few seconds. And so what we're playing right now as a species is a finite game. We're playing for this near-term immediate uh, reward versus an infinite game is the only game people want to play is to keep on playing. And so if, if we were playing infinite games as a species, we would soberly assess, assess what things create the highest risk for our survival what things create the highest risk to our health and wellness and what things create the highest risk for our happiness and then we would systematically work on those things and we would create uh, dispositions where we would view this entertainment game as probably you know a threat to those longer term goals and so hopefully what we're going through is a phase and hopefully we will find uh, better versions of culture that point us towards these longer term objectives. And I hope again that brain interfaces allow measurement that allow the systematic engineering of our cognitive experience which then allows us to rebuild society in these longer term ways. Uh, but it really, to me that every generation looks out at the horizon of their time and place and assesses the tools of their disposal. And then they make aspirational goals. And in the sixties, perhaps the biggest goal one could make would be going to the moon. 
that we had just reached a technological a potential threshold of being able to pull, uh, pull off something like that. Wasn't clear, but maybe. And now in the year, in the 2020s, I think if we survey the landscape of possibilities, I would put my finger on that no generation of humans have ever been able to look out over the time span of their lifetimes and been able to reasonably imagine that they could evolve into entirely novel forms of conscious experience. So novel that we can't even imagine them. And this is, this is real. This is, uh, the technologies are there for this to become a possibility. Uh, yet this is not one of our goals. And I think it should be the number one aspiration that, especially for our children, that when they're getting their education and they're starting to map their life goals, that this is the possibility that should drive all of us. Uh, Wonderful. So I'm curious, what could be the most important quality you have to maintain? Maybe after this old experiences you have. Yeah. What could be the most important quality you have to maintain? To believe that I am not right. Mm. Right. And um, I'm curious if there's any book maybe inspired you. I don't know, maybe related to what you're doing or in general, if there is any book maybe yeah, I've ever read and was inspiring to you. I don't... The biography. Uh, so the title is zero, the biography of a dangerous idea. And mm. it's about the discovery of the number zero. And we, of course, assume that is obvious. And we use zero every day in everything we do. But zero was not always obvious. And as we learned about zero, and as we accepted zero as a society, it wrecked math and religion and philosophy and society. And so zero, I wrote up, uh, I, I love it so much. I, I created a, a concept that I work on personally, uh, zeroth principles thinking. It's a, a twin to first principles thinking. And I primarily came up with this because when I was, after I sold Braintree Venmo, I was thinking about how might we aspire to the most magical future possible. And in my investigations, I consistently ran up against this problem of trying to make that analysis with first principles thinking. I needed something more because I didn't think, I don't think the future were, that is uh, in our possibility set can be deduced from first principles thinking. I think we really have to think about it from zeroth principles thinking. And so I won't get into the concept now, but it's a, it's a nuanced way that I think about the possibility set. And so, yeah, I'd say that book was, uh, it changed my perspective on how to think about what's possible. If you guessed about that advice was life changing, but I know you don't like that. And I agree that advice shouldn't be taken from everyone. Just it's something different, but maybe what is the legacy you want to leave? Or maybe something you think that, yeah, to be changing the life, life would be, of course, it's real kernel, but maybe it's real kernel. You can answer that as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's customary 
to inquire of others uh, what their advice is. And advice is a mirror of that person. So the, the value is not, do, not accepting someone else's advice. The value is deconstructing that person's advice to understand what life experiences and learnings went into them constructing that advice. And then you can analyze it from a first and zeroth principles perspective and decide whether you think those are appropriate starting points for your uh, understanding of reality or whether you want to adjust those. But the, the danger is if you accept someone's advice without deconstructing the entire stack, then you're basically accepting all of the, the entirety of it and you are at risk of creating grave errors. So, and that's especially true now with this possibility set we have where reimagining our human experience and intelligent life in the future, we need more people than ever to question the fundamentals of everything around us. And advice buries uh, all those things in the representation of authority or status or prestige which should not fool us. That's really profound and very important. And it's rare to hear that, so, but it's really that we, what we need. So thank you once again, Brian. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say or if you have any final words you'd like to say to, before closing, yeah. yeah I w- uh, the last thing I would say is I was raised in this small community. My, my grandfather had a farm. I worked on the farm with him. I didn't meet an engineer. I literally did not know an engineer until I was in my early 20s. It, pursuing the path of engineering was just never uh, in my mindset of what could be possible in the world. And I now work with engineers all day, every day. And I love that experience. And there's a part of me you know, this, it, this, is a, this is a complicated contemplation, but there's a part of me that wishes I had been exposed to engineering at a very early age as a potential way that I could, a potential path to teach to, for education. And uh, I guess with my children, I feel fortunate that they do get exposed to engineering because engineering is so magical. Kernel would not be possible without the depth of engineering talent we have today. We're working on some of the hardest problems in the entire world. And I, I'm in awe at what they can do. And so I just have this new found respect and appreciation for engineering and the people who you know, do learn these skills and become the best in the world at it. Because what we have technically done uh, as a species is remarkable. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would just encourage, uh, everyone to take a look at it and see if it's the path for them, because I don't think the world is going to be hurt by more engineers. I agree with you. That's really wonderful. And again, it's such an honor to have you and you're very inspiring and intelligent. So um, I deeply appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. That's, thank you. Wonderful to speak with you. Thanks, Ian, for the time. Oh,